Greetings and welcome to the Animal Wellness Podcast, the official podcast of Animal Wellness Action. Hi, I'm your host, Joseph Grove. On this show, we talk about animals and the people who care about them and have the ability to improve their lives by influencing culture and supporting pro-animal laws and regulations. To stay up to date with all of our news and information, subscribe to this podcast, receive our free newsletters and more, visit animalwellnessaction.org. With me today, as always, are Wayne Paselli and Marty Irby. Wayne, founder of Animal Wellness Action, is the author of two New York Times best-selling books on animal welfare and a former president and CEO of the Humane Society of the United States. He has led efforts to pass more than 100 federal laws and amendments, 1,500 state laws, 30 ballot initiatives, and 500 corporate agreements. Marty is the executive director of the group and also its chief lobbyist in D.C., he is a lifelong horseman. He worked in the U.S. House of Representatives for Kentucky's Congressman Ed Whitfield as his communications director and agriculture policy advisor. He served as the president of the Tennessee Walking Horse Breeders and Exhibitors Association, where he led the charge to bring an end to the painful practice of soaring walking horses. Irby is a Heritage Foundation Congressional Fellow, former director of equine protection and rural affairs at the Humane Society of the United States, and a native of South Alabama who grew up on a horse and cattle farm. So, gentlemen, uh, welcome to you both. Glad to have you with us, as always. Thank you, Joe. Thank so you, much. Joe. We are so grateful for you. This is a fascinating show, and I've really been looking forward to it. And as I've contemplated getting into the topic, uh, I was recalled of, of a few times in my life when, when events happened over uh, the course of the national consciousness uh, that, that really stuck with me. One of them uh, was 9-11. Uh, I remember when the Columbia lost contact with NASA as it re-entered and of course broke apart. I remembered too when the attempt was made on Ronald Reagan's life back in 1981. All of these times were where I and the nation were compelled to watch with, with horror at what was happening on the screen and it was just gut-wrenching. And then another time related to the topic of our podcast, was back in 2008, when right after the Kentucky Derby, eight bells, a filly who had come in second in that race was being walked off the track and collapsed with, with two broken front legs. And just the, the terror, the horror, the sorrow that washed over me and so much of the nation as we wondered what was going on with eight bells, the sight of her being euthanized, blocked from the cameras, it was it was gut wrenching, and that is today the topic of our podcast, and and that is what is going on in thoroughbred horse racing, and what can be done to make this sport of kings a sport of humanitarian intent. From an article published back in October in the Washington Post, in the past five years, more than five thousand racehorses have died in the United States. That 1,000 per year rate reflects just reportable racing-related deaths. Hundreds more die annually in their stalls from the industry described as non-racing causes. Colic, uh, laminitis, barn accident, or simply found dead in the morning. The article continues, Death can come in many forms. Cardiovascular collapse, pulmonary hemorrhage, bleeding in the lungs, blunt force head trauma from collisions with other horses or the track itself in a fall, snapped necks, severed spines, shredded ligaments. 
The horse's legs can shatter as they try to support their 1,000-pound body with a jockey on top at speeds of up to 40 miles an hour. Sometimes a leg will break so severely that the limb remains attached to the rest of the body only by skin and tendons. Badly injured horses are euthanized with an injection of pentobarbital solution. The title of that article is, The Time for Horse Racing Has Passed, It's Time to Outlaw It. And I want to ask our guests, just to get deep into the heart of the problem right now with thoroughbred racing, whether that has a point to be made, whether the author of that article is right. And with that, I'll introduce our guests so that we can get right into the conversation with them. I'm really happy to be joined today by Arthur Hancock III and his wife, Stacy Hancock. They own the 2,000-acre stone farm just outside of Paris, Kentucky. The past 50 years, they have raised three winners of the Kentucky Derby, as well as six champions in the U.S. and Europe. Stacy was an original founder, director, and first chairman of the board of the Kentucky Equine Humane Center, which was developed to provide an alternative to slaughter. She is a past member of the Responsible Breeders Council at the Humane Society of the United States. And for over 35 years, Arthur Hancock has been raising good horses by building on the expertise instilled years ago by his father on the excellence of the soil and grass, the improvements of modern veterinary science, and the intangibles of horsemanship that echo throughout his family's history. Stone Farm began in 1970, has become known for raising horses in a way that encourages strength, vigor, and a confident, competitive nature. So, um, uh, Stacy and Arthur, does the headline have a point? Is it time to outlaw thoroughbred racing? And if not, what can we do to make it better? Well, good morning. Um, I'm Arthur, and um, you know, here at the farm, we have 80 to 100 acre fields, and you can look out here and see these yearlings ripping and running and turning and uh, rearing up and you know rarely if ever do we have the misfortune of having something happen to them and then they go off to the racetracks which are manicured and treated in the best way possible and uh, you know holes are looked after and they do everything that, that can be done in fact they're better today than they used to be but We've got more horses breaking down. I think by the statistics you gave, it's what, around two or three a day across the country. And uh, I attribute all this to the fact that these horses are getting uh, many, many drugs. There are 36 legal drugs. And unfortunately, they're getting others that we don't know about. And um, I think we've got to stop that. I don't think we should ban horse racing. It's a great sport. It's America's oldest sport. The horses love to run. Uh, they were born to run, and they love it. But I think the human intervention with all these drugs uh, is what is causing a lot of this, a huge amount of it. When I was a boy, you never saw horses break down like this. I mean, in any sport, you can have a football player can break his neck or something. But uh, now, you know, it, it, it happens way, way too often. And I think we've got to get a handle on these drugs. Just here recently, there was an article that came out that said uh, butazolidin, which is an NSAID, uh, causes catastrophic breakdowns. And these horses regularly get butazolidin. 
They say in people that Lasix, which they get when they breeze them or work them every day, as well as when they run them, they, they say, oh, that really doesn't bother horses. Yet in people, if you take Lasix, you're warned that it can make your born, uh, bones more fragile. It seems to me the 1,000-pound animal running on these thin bones as opposed to a human who weighs 150 to 250 and probably has an equal amount of shin bone with a horse, uh, it, it's, it's got to have an effect on them. I mean, so they're, they're, they're inundated with drugs. It's just the way it is. They shockwave them at the racetrack, which, which uh, you know, mutes the pain, nullifies the pain. Uh, and that's, that's what I've been saying for 30 years, you know, that we've got to get rid of it. And, uh, and I believe if we can stop all this drugging, you'll see a, a huge amount of these catastrophes uh, vanish into the wind. Thank you, Arthur. And, and one of the two pieces of legislation we want to talk about today goes straight to the point you were just making, and that is the safety of the medications being administered to these thoroughbreds and other racing horses uh, prior uh, to competition and throughout training. Marty, you were very involved with uh, legislation impacting the well-being of horses. Talk about the first of these two bills we want to address, and that is the Horse Racing Integrity Act. How would that bill, if passed and signed into law, ameliorate some of the concerns Arthur just discussed? Yes, thank you, Joe. You know, and first, I'd just like to add for our listeners out there um, on both sides of the issue that we as an organization do not oppose horse racing. We want to bring integrity back to the sport. Um, it's fallen to an all-time low in public opinion. So we've worked for the past five years or so to advance the Horse Racing Integrity Act, which is H.R. 1754 in the U.S. House and S. 1820 in the U.S. Senate. What the bill would do is grant the authority to USADA, the U.S. anti-doping agency that oversees the testing for the Olympics and many other sporting events out in the world, um, to make a standard set of uniform rules across the nation with standard uniform penalties in all 50 states for those who may violate the rules and regulations. It would also eliminate race day medication use and abuse, so it would end race day doping and create a much better system than what is out there today. Today, we have a balkanized system and patchwork of about 38 different racing jurisdictions and states, and they have so many different sets of rules, regulations, penalties, and there's really not much, if any, uniformity. Uh, trainers out there could um, have an infraction and be issued penalties in one state and just pick up and move to the next and really not have their business affected too terribly by that. So there's very little incentive to stop doping today, and if you violate the rules, you're not going to end up in very much trouble. So what the legislation would do is just what its name says, bring integrity back to the sport. And we currently have uh, 229 co-sponsors in the U.S. House. We have more than half of the chamber and we have 25 in the U.S. Senate, uh, almost a, qu well, a quarter of the chamber there. It's very important, I believe, that we get this bill over the goal line in this Congress. I think it will pretty easily hopefully move through the House and would pass on what we call the suspension calendar, where two-thirds of the chamber 
would support it. Um, we've not heard really any vocal opposition from members of Congress in the House of Representatives and believe this is the next one that can get done. Uh, Wayne, this is an issue I know near and dear to your heart. How have I set up the issue and what would you have to say in addition to Arthur's comments regarding it? Well, <laughs> listen, this this Horse Racing Integrity Act that's the subject of the hearing uh, this this week in Congress is really an antibiotic designed to cure the infection um, in horse racing. Horse racing is a subject that I wrote about 30 years ago. Arthur Hancock and Stacey Hancock, who have been tremendous leaders and courageous voices within the industry to really speak about our responsibilities to horses. Horses are at the center of this enterprise. The whole business would not exist but for the horses. And how we could then, you know, subsume them and have these other priorities and not make them first is really one of the big problems in horse racing. It's the, the doping on race day. Um, it's poor breeding practices that make them more vulnerable to breakdowns. It's the disposition of the horses once they're no longer involved in racing, sending them to slaughter by the thousands every year. You know, in the broadest sense, Joe, and I address this to, to Arthur and Stacy as well, you know, the sport of horse racing is fundamentally different as an animal-oriented sport than something like, you know, animal fighting. In animal fighting, the purpose of the sport is to have the animals engage in combat where you know inevitably they're going to be injured and hurt and sometimes killed. Racing is about running, which is which is a fundamentally, um, you know, uh, it's a fundamental activity of living organisms. I mean, uh, those with legs, for sure, the, the mammals. And there should be nothing wrong with running. The problem with, with the sport is that they're not treating the animals properly at the various stages, before the races, during the races, after the races. One can certainly imagine an enterprise where the welfare of the horse is put first at every stage of the process, and you have uh, an, an enterprise that does not compromise the well-being of the animal in any way. And as Arthur said, sure, there may be injuries, just like in human sport, there are people who get injured, but this is part of life, and this is part of the risk that all living organisms take by you know, putting one foot in front of the other. I mean, we could all be in a closet for our lives and never be at risk of, of getting hit by a car or, um, you know, hurting our leg. Uh, so I really think it's the way that we have been custodians of these animals. And for too long, the industry has, has just moved in the direction of more profit. They have, they have uh, made the concern for the horse, the secondary or tertiary concern. And what we want at Animal Wellness Action, and I know what Arthur and Stacy want, is to put the horses first. And the business of stopping race day doping is just a, a simple and obvious step in that regard. Stacy, I want to ask you uh, a question. Uh, since 1990, uh, the amount bet on racing, on, on races, has dropped by about 51%. Uh, in 2014, for example, 
attendance went down from 78 million over the course of a year or two races to 42 million. Um, many racetracks now are getting a larger share of money from slot machines and other gaming activities. And some racetrack owners are even referring to, uh, or at least one has, it's easy to overgeneralize, but it's, it's not uncommon, I believe, for it to be said that the track part itself is secondary now to some of these other gaming activities. Will making the race more humane for the animals perhaps reverse that trend? Is the sport's reputation hurting it? I guess I'm asking the same question two different ways. But how has the reputation of potential mortal danger for these animals impacted the public's willingness to support it? And will this legislation, if enacted and successful, reverse that trend? Wow. Um, You're really, you're talking, (laughs) you're asking the wrong person that question because I don't even put a $2 bet down. Thank you, Arthur. Do you see a correlation there? Well, I do. I think the attendance that you mentioned, uh, for me, the, the, the concern, of course, is the horse, but also this is how we make our livelihood. And you can expect uh, people to want to come out or have an interest in racing and continue to have an interest in racing when they go to the racetrack and see something terrible happen. Yes, I do. I think there's a direct correlation to the drop in popularity, the bad publicity, as you, as you mentioned earlier, eight bells was a heartbreak. It was terrible. But uh, certainly I do. And that's why I've been so adamant and so uh, outspoken you know, about all these drugs these horses get, because in my mind, that is the real culprit for all of these tragedies that we're seeing. Marty, this seems like a no-brainer to me, right? You talk about Lasix, the potential impact on bone density, uh, the pain-relieving medication so that the horse doesn't know to slow him or herself down when the pain is getting too much. Who is opposing what to me sounds like just incredibly common-sense legislation? Well, I think for the most part, there are some uh, major corporations, uh, a very small handful of tracks out there along with a number of the trainers that are the ones who have really uh, learned how to rig the system. So, um, you know, for example, Churchill Downs right there in your backyard where the Kentucky Derby is uh, a publicly traded corporation has tracks in Kentucky, uh, New Orleans, Louisiana, and in other locations. And they have not necessarily opposed the bill publicly, but they haven't gotten on board and supporting the bill. And so they're, very obvious absence has been a big problem on Capitol Hill. When we think about horse trainers, uh, most of the time when the general public is watching horse racing on national television each year, they think about the Kentucky Derby and they see that guy on television with the silvery hair. And that's Bob Baffert. And he also has not come out in support of the bill. So when you're talking to members of Congress and you're talking to their staff and the general public, they may not know what the Breeders' Cup is, and they may not know what Keeneland is, and they may not know what the Jockey Club is, and probably don't know who Chris McCarron is. But those two very distinguished and prominent uh, names are very recognized around the country. And so when you sit down and talk with someone and they ask you about those two, you, you can't say, yeah, they support the bill. So that's been a big hindrance. So I think we have to get the rest of these tracks on board, we definitely need the Kentucky Derby and Churchill Downs on board. And I know we're making progress, 
and discussions with them. And we need to get the big trainers like Bob Baffert out there to support the bill. Stacy has done an absolutely amazing job at getting trainers on board through her organization, the Water Hay Oats Alliance, to support the bill. And I don't know if Stacy could tell us what the number is now. I know it's more than 100 or 150 or so, but we still need those top trainers that people really recognize. Yeah, we've worked really hard to get some industry leaders uh, on board with the Water Hay Oats Alliance, which basically is a grassroots movement to support this legislation or, in fact, legislations in the past. The first bill we supported was in 2011 with uh, Ed Whitfield was the lead on there. Um, And since that time, with each Congress, the bills morphed and we've gotten some different support from the industry. But as far as the trainers go, I mean, we have Hall of Fame trainers. I think we have nine Hall of Fame trainers, both in in the um, thoroughbred industry and in the standard bred industry. Uh, Our total membership at this point is over 1,800. It's approaching 1,900 members, all owners, breeders, trainers, jockeys, industry professionals, uh, professional handicappers, and also racing fans because they play a big part of the uh, picture. So we've got the support. We don't have everyone's support. And I think I think a point with the trainers is that the new generation of trainers, the young men and women who are training horses today, have never trained without the use of medication. And when I say medication, we have therapeutic medication, which is being used inappropriately. A therapeutic medication is used to treat an injured or ill animal. And the rules have changed over the last uh, 30 years to the point where we are using therapeutic medications on race day or prior to race day. And so what this bill would do would be to back off those therapeutic medications and use medications that are made to treat ill and injured horses when the horses are ill and injured, not as a performance enhancing part of the uh, equation. Then there's also doping, which of course no one wants people to cheat. So that's another part of the bill to go after those trainers, owners that use exotic drugs to, you know, gain an edge during the race. Stacy, let me let me ask you this: um, trainers. I mean, obviously you have, you know, your marquee names. You know, Bob Baffert, uh, D. Wayne Lucas, one of them. Uh, so they may have one level of influence and independence from owners. But on average, do trainers have enough clout with zealous, persuasive, well-funded owners to say no to owners who may insist that they not lose a single iota of competitive edge and thereby motivate the trainer to therapeutically uh, treat the horse or dope the horse? I, I would say most of it's so competitive that most of the young trainers are out to get as many owners as they can. And if an owner asks them to to administer some of these med- medications that are not illegal, they're bad for the horse, but they are not illegal, and they want to actually run on a level playing field, which currently is dope-ridden, they're going to administer the drugs. But I think basically those instructions are going to come from, from the veterinarians, not the owners. 
and I might add to that that Lasix is legal, and almost every horse in every race gets Lasix. They lose about 30 pounds after they get the shot. So it's got to be performance enhancing. It's a vicious circle that's been created. The, the drug is legal, which by the way, the cost to the owners of the horses on Lasix alone is like $100 million a year. So the veterinarians and, and the drug companies recommend it. It's legal. It's money. You know, it's big money. The trainers don't want to take a backseat to the next trainer who's using Lasix and or the other, quote, therapeutic uh, drugs, 36 therapeutic drugs. And so it's, it's sort of a vicious circle that's created from the veterinarian to the trainer and to the owner who is told by the trainer, we need these drugs to run. So the, the, the trainers are in a tough spot. You have the owners who naturally want the biggest possible return on the substantial investment they make in a thoroughbred horse. Who then really feels the pressure in addition to whatever legis legislative work we can have here? You know, how can we put additional pressure and on whom to get more support for this legislation and um, uh, just improvements in general? Is it corporate sponsors? Is it is it the track attendance? How can people listening to this podcast, I would say, uh, make more pressure to have this more humane treatment pursued? You know, your congressman is going to listen to his constituents. And no matter uh, who you are, if you're a racing fan or if you're an owner, a trainer, a jockey, if you see the wisdom in having a national uniform set of rules being run by a completely outside independent agency and anti-doping expert, a simple phone call to your congressman or your uh, senator, any of the delegation in your state would make a huge amount of uh, impact on what we're trying to do here. We just want a clean sport so we can all run on a level playing field and our horses who have courage and heart and want to run uh, will be able to run without being given all these medications and the best horse will win. And, and I might add to that that uh, America is the only nation on this planet in the world that allows for these race day medications. The only country. Yes, WOE supports the International Federation of Horse Racing Authorities, which have very strict rules uh, banning substances uh, prior to race day. Some are like 48, two weeks, 48 hours to two weeks out. You can't give these medications. I mentioned I wrote a story about this issue 30 years ago for a magazine, 30 years ago. And if you were to reread that story today, you'd see many of the same issues. So the industry has had plenty of time to address this problem. I mean, no animal group really took this issue on. We were concerned pr principally with factory farming, with puppy mills, with trophy hunting, with horse slaughter, with a number of other problems. And I think all along we hoped because, you know, fundamentally running horses shouldn't be a harmful thing. We hoped that it would be cleaned up, but the industry has failed to do so. What's great is that 
Arthur and Stacy and Stacy's Water Hay Oats Alliance, because that's what horses should run on is water, hay, and oats and nothing else. And the Jockey Club, which is a very esteemed group, the breed registry for the thoroughbred uh, racing industry or for thoroughbreds, you know, they're now advocating in support of this legislation. So we've got a great coalition of horse industry leaders and animal welfare groups. And, you know, the opponents of this, they throw out things about, you know, well, you know, we need medications. No one's saying you can't have medication. The issue is the proper use of medication, not abusing it. You know, an opioid can relieve pain or an opioid can be an addictive, life-threatening um, substance taken too much at the wrong time. And Arthur and Stacy have noted that the global industry of horse racing has already shed this practice. Why is the United States, which should be a leader on animal welfare, lagging so far behind? And this is just, you know, it's being used to cheat is what's going on. And I, I wanted to ask Arthur as a, as a major horse farm owner and as a successful person in the industry with Kentucky Derby winners, I mean, does he face pressure? Knowing that other trainers and owners are going to be doing this, I mean, how does somebody in the industry respond when you know the other guy's going to be cheating? How do you deal with with the issue of not of not escalating and 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 uh, using drugs as well, inappropriately using drugs? Well, like I say, they're performance enhancing. So if you're going to run your horse, it's like if you're going to get in a fight, which it you know it is a fight. A race, it's stiff competition. You can't do it with one hand tied behind your back. So if, if they're all giving Lasix in the race and they all run thirty pounds lighter, you know, and your trainer wants to run on Lasix, you in order to compete, you just go along with whatever the the rules are. You have to, or you, or you know, you're cooked. You go broke. Well, members that are owners and breeders and trainers. Play by the current rules, which allow Lasix, but we want to see the rules change. They allow butazolidin. We want to see those rules changed. And that's, you know, sadly, the industry has been trying to fix this problem since 1982 when um, there was the Corrupt Horse Practices Act. And there were hearings in Washington, and the industry came to Washington and testified and said, we're going to fix this. But... Our industry is so fragmented, and there's no central office, so no one has been able to fix it. The only way we can cure this illness, so to speak, is through federal legislation that will appoint an independent agency. The federal government is not going to be involved in regulating uh, medication and rules and issues. It will be USADA, the United States Anti-Doping Agency. Marty, you wanted to talk about the SAFE Act. Yes. No, thank you, Joe. And, and thanks, Stacey and Arthur, again, for joining us. I know they've had a very long history, as has Wayne and myself, on working to end horse slaughter. And the Safeguard American Food Exports Act is a bill that was introduced in this Congress and has been in many other Congresses, um, this time by Congresswoman Jan Schakowsky from Illinois, along with Vern Buchanan from Florida in the U.S. House and U.S. Senator Lindsey Graham and Senator Bob Menendez in the U.S. Senate. And basically, it takes horse slaughter um, from the angle or approach that they're 
is a food safety hazard with the consumption of horse meat. So we don't eat horse meat in America. Uh, I don't think many, if anyone, would think even twice about eating that. I know poll after poll has shown that 80% of Americans or more oppose horse slaughter, but we have horses that are being thrown to the wayside, horses that come off of the racetrack. I know there was a 2012 study that showed that 19% of the horses going to slaughter were coming out of the racing industry. And those horses have been pumped full of all these drugs we've been talking about in the um, previous section of the podcast. So that has tainted the meat. I know bute is one specifically a drug that's utilized that um, is found in the meat on many occasions. And that can be a health and safety risk to the humans that are consuming it. So the SAFE Act, um, in a different form, passed the House a little over a decade ago, overwhelmingly, even when Vice President Mike Pence was in the U.S. House, he voted in support of it, but it never got any action in the Senate. So on Wednesday morning, following the Horse Racing Integrity Act hearing on Tuesday, the House Energy and Commerce Committee's Health Subcommittee, led by uh, Congresswoman um, Anna Eshoo, will also be discussing the SAFE Act and the food safety aspects of that bill as it relates to the FDA and consumption of horse meat. And we hope to see some action on that as well. And I know everyone else here would like to talk a little about it as well. And I just thank them and the greater equine community for helping bring more and more people on board to end horse slaughter every day. Yeah. A, a Wild for Life Foundation study back in 2012 uh, found that uh, from 2002 to 2010, 19% of the horses slaughtered were thoroughbreds. Uh, another study had it about 16%, but almost one in five horses slaughtered in those eight years uh, was a thoroughbred. This is not the way we want to see our equine athletes treated. And actually, it goes back to what we were speaking about earlier, medication. Because we can give the horses, or our industry can give the horses these medications, instead of a horse getting some time off to heal from a suspensory or or a chip, or any number of injuries, they're pumped full of drugs so they can't feel uh, the pain, and therefore they, they run when they're injured, which leaves a broken down horse at the end of, the, of his racing career. So that horse has very little value in that we can't, there, there's not much hope for that horse in a second career, which is we're very active in trying to find thoroughbreds second careers. So that puts them at risk of ending up in a kill pen somewhere. And, you know, I would like to add something there. When I was a boy, now I'm 76, but uh, when I was a boy, if you owned a racehorse, you could expect 45 lifetime starts from that horse. Now it's like nine. That tells you the whole story right there. Say when I got out of college, the first thing I did, my father wanted me to work the racetrack. Well, I worked a year for Eddie Neloy and started up at Belmont in New York, and we went to Hialeah that winter. The only time the veterinarian would come around the barn was to check the horse on race day or if he got a temperature or got sick. I mean, now they're everywhere, and, and now they basically run the show, and... um it's all changed, and I think the corresponding drop in the number of starts and the broken-down horses, all, not always, maybe, but, but the majority of the time has to do with, with the, the sea of drugs that they're given. That's, that's what I think I've always thought, and I'll always think it. 
you know, uh, I wanted to ask you, sir, I started to interrupt you and I apologize. Uh, you talked about the number of starts going down from 45 uh, to nine. Is that because the horse just is, is exhausted or medically spent? What specifically helped me who is not as steeped in this issue as you understand why the decrease in starts based on the topic? Well, personally, I think that, for instance, if a horse gets Lasix, it drains his system. They have to give him uh, what they call jugs the day after, which are fluids. I think that's one of the causes. and They just aren't able to run as many times. And they don't stay as sound. Overall, they just don't stay as sound. So they, their, their careers are over earlier. And uh, if, if not the drugs, then what? The racetracks are kept in the best condition. Uh, the breeding practices haven't changed. We raise them the same on the farm. The main thing that has crept in are these drugs. As I say, well, it was 1966 when I worked a year at the racetrack. I, don't re I do remember one horse broke down the year I worked for Mr. Neloy. They did not get all these. They didn't allow Lasix and Abute and all these other drugs within 24 hours or on race day. They were hardly ever even treated by the vets. The vets weren't around. And I'm not, the, this is a culture that has crept in. Veterinarians are good people, but they got to make a living like everybody else. And they make a living by selling the drugs that they administer. And it just got to stop or we're not going to have an industry. And it's just a shame what's happened in some of these horses. Arthur's an expert. And of course, I'm a novice compared to him. So he would know better than, than I would. But to me also, you know, looking at the world of dog breeding, you see that many dogs have genetic and hereditary problems as a consequence of breeding practice. I mean, you can list the, the genetic and hereditary problems that different breeds have. It may be 10 or 20 or 30 or 50 different problems that might arise during the lifespan of a dog. So I think that, you know, breeding practices can alter the soundness of an animal. They may be predisposed to get certain forms of cancer. They may have hip problems. They may have have respiratory issues, breathing issues. You know, a lot of people have argued that certain breeding practice practices have made the animals more vulnerable as well. So I certainly agree with Arthur's thesis that uh, widespread overuse of medication has been a problem. But I also do think that some of the breeding practices were breeding for speed make these animals more vulnerable as well. And, you know, this is something that, you know, really cannot be legislated in, in any way. It really speaks to these competitive pressures. It speaks to the integrity of the of people running the horse farms. But I think there are a number of issues at work here. And again, everyone wants to win who's involved in the sport. There are people who make a living who are tied to this. Uh, the issue is the horses have to be put first. And and this was my concern, and this ties into the horse slaughter issue, is that when some people are done with horses, they discard them, mm -hmm. especially at the minor league tracks. You know, we hear about the Kentucky Derby and the Preakness and the Belmont and the other major races, but there are lots of races that happen throughout the United States every day at tracks that are poorly attended, 
and horses who perform poorly at those tracks go right into um, the trucks of kill buyers that are shipped to Canada and Mexico. And I think that is another major problem. There is a legislative solution on that, which is the SAFE Act, which Marty talked about, which would forbid the interstate transport or the import or export of live horses for slaughter for human consumption. And this is also long overdue legislation. Well, and as an industry and a sport, uh, we need to be cognizant of the fact that we can't expect our race fans to get behind these horses, our equine athletes, and, and cheer them on in a sport knowing full well that when some of them are done, they end up in a bad place. We, as an industry and a sport, we need to be responsible to our equine athletes, find them other second careers. Uh, some of them end up in the breeding shed. And, you know, sadly, if they're in a really bad way and they have no future, we need to humanely euthanize them, which is not in any way, shape, or form what happens with slaughter. Doubtless it's the case. I mean, people go to the track, they see these horses, they may walk through the paddock area. And I think it's almost natural to imagine that after their racing days are over, they all end up on a nice uh, farm like Stone Farm and, you know, just kind of hang out and watch reruns of Matlock until, until it's, you know, it's their time to go. Um, but it's staggering what, what I'm learning and have learned in researching for this podcast what really happens to, I like the way you put it, Stacey, our equine athletes uh, after their useful athletic careers are done. Well, again, I think all of these issues are tied together, whether it's medication, uh, abuse, which causes horses to break down, whether catastrophically on the track or after their career is over, they're, you know, they're just spent. Um if, with the sound horse, we can find another purpose. I grew up riding an off-the-track racehorses. They're great athletes. They're uh, wonderful sport horses, and there's a market for them. But they have to be sound, so they have to be well cared for at the track to move on. Marty, uh, Wayne, any final thoughts? Yeah, I would just add, you know, thank Arthur and Stacy again. You know, they are the epitome of the type of um, – thoroughbred racing owners and breeders that we would like to see across the board. They do a tremendous job. They spend countless hours, days, weeks, and have years on working to advance both of these pieces of legislation that we've discussed. I know they're both very responsible breeders that would never let any horse they have raised go to slaughter and have even gone above and beyond the call of duty to bring one back to the farm to prevent them from going to slaughter. So I hope that all of the listeners out there will really take that to heart and those especially who own horses, breed horses, and raise horses, that the horse must always come first. Yeah, I would just say we can't be bystanders at this point. We've got two critical pieces of legislation that the American public supports. So many people in the horse industry support these bills. And it's easy for the industries, you know, the segments of the industries that just want the status quo to block these bills. And if, if good people stand on the sidelines, then we're going to see stasis. But we have an incredible opportunity. Uh, the chair of the Energy and Commerce Subcommittee, Jan Schakowsky, is a great animal protection leader. I think she can move that bill. The chair of the committee, uh, Frank Pallone, has a very good record on animal issues. We've got great bipartisan support. 
We've got good leaders on this Horse Racing Integrity Act. Andy, Andy Barr and Paul Tonko, a Republican and a Democrat, who represent major horse uh, racing and horse industry districts. No reason this shouldn't happen, but, but it won't happen unless people contact their lawmakers, get friends to contact lawmakers, uh, do everything they can. This is a political organizing effort at this point. The merits of this legislation, I think, are very clear. Uh, but, you know, American politics is not a spectator sport. It's a participatory sport, and we have to get active. Yeah, and this is the time of year uh, to do it, not only because of the, the bills you just mentioned, but because, you know, as soon as the weather warms up a few degrees, I know in Kentucky, uh, it'll all be about the Derby from here until May. So uh, it's ripe for action relative to that season. Thank you so much for listening to the Animal Wellness Podcast. I've been your host, Joseph Grove. Be sure to visit animalwellnessaction.org to find out about all of our legislative efforts, subscribe to our newsletters, and link up with our social media channels. Want to subscribe to this podcast? Go to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, and we'll be back real soon with another episode of the Animal Wellness Podcast.